Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we examine Putin's scaled-back Victory Day parade in Moscow, analyse the battlefield developments of recent days, and consider the possible strategies Ukraine will adopt for its imminent counter-offensive. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 9th of May, one year and 74 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, our Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva, and senior visiting fellow in the Department of War Studies at King's College London, Dr Mike Martin. Dom had spent the morning doing live video commentary for The Telegraph on Putin's Victory Day parade. So I started by asking him for his observations. Well, hi, Francis, and hi, everybody. I mean, I've actually had quite a quite a pleasant day. I've cleared a load of stuff from my diary saying I'm going to be really busy all day doing the uh, Victory Day parade from Moscow. And, of course, the thing was over in about 40 minutes, so I've, I've had my feet up for, for most of the morning. But uh, we'll start with that. The Victory Day parade, uh, Moscow every day, every year, May the 9th. This is to remember, ostensibly to remember, the fallen in the Second World War. I say ostensibly because actually it's not. Putin Putin's using this as a as an extension of his own his own ego. He sees himself as inheriting the the legacy left by that generation from the Second World War and he's trying to blend the identity that the then Soviet Union drew from that into today and channel it through him. But hey, I'm getting a bit bit existential. I'll come back to all that. But we knew it was going to be paired back. We knew it was going to be a slimmed down version, but it was extraordinary. And I, I'm not overdoing this, but look, it, it's always led by a T-34 tank. The T-34 that basically was Russia's powerhouse in the Second World War. It was a good tank, but it was it was cheap and it's mass produced and it just overwhelmed the German army, basically. But it, it was a good tank. So it was always led by the T-34. And that was it. No, no other tanks. 
there was there were no other tracked vehicles. It, it not even the Armata. We they, you know, they normally trot out the the one Armata they can get going around the corner. The T14, you know, supposedly the new wonder tank that actually isn't. It's a it's still a prototype, unlikely to go into mass production anytime soon. But that was it. No other tanks, no artillery, very few infantry carriers and air defence systems. They got out the old RS-24, the Yars, the nuclear missile carrier, an 8x8, big, big 8x8 carrier with a nuclear nuclear missile or tube on the back anyway. No fly past, second year running. Last year they said it was because of the weather. This year, well, they just didn't didn't comment. And the marching troops, well, for the most part, for the most part, not actually troops, but cadets and students from military universities. So that's why I, I wrote on the, um, on the on our blog, and it's the title of this uh, of this space, that it was a damp squib. I mean, it really was. It was, and I'm, I've been chatting with people here in the office saying, you know, what would have been more embarrassing if they'd called it off, citing security concerns or or anything? Would the embarrassment from that have been? worse than the embarrassment of having this this thing this this parade there was no march of the immortal regiment the immortal regiment is the family members who hold pictures of 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 their loved ones that they lost in the second world war we knew that was cancelled anyway because of the well either the link that would have been made in people's minds about well what about everyone that we've lost in the current war (coughs) sorry special military operation and there might there's always possibility that someone could have made a protest or some some sort so the the march of the immortal regiment bearing in mind this whole thing apparently is respecting that second world war generation so the march of the immortal regiment is the centerpiece of it and putin has used that he's marching it before he's used that in order to draw some of the kudos but no that was cancelled anyway and the whole thing was it, it, it was just it was just shocking i think if i mean i've we like you to listen to us because it's we can give you a summary of what's happened today. I was live presenting with Aliona Halivko, former Ukrainian MP, a guest on this pod many, many times. So I don't need to summarise it. It won't take much out of your time if you go onto our website and or our YouTube channel and have a look at it. It's only about 40 minutes long. I'd got the thing from the International Institute for Strategic Studies with all my tanks and air defence and jets and blah. I'd spent all of yesterday tabbing it up so I could, you know, quick and easy reference. Didn't need any of it. It's a bit of a bit of a fraud. Anyway, what was what was interesting? I thought Putin's speech, yeah, all the usual stuff, fire breathing, full of Nazis. That's us, of course, and uh, degenerates. That's us again. But you know, just bluff, bluff and bluster, short on detail. But what I thought was interesting was that the there were leaders from the uh, CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, as we've mentioned before. This uh, is grouping, so it's Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan. Um, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Russia. Russia, Putin would like to style it as the kind of NATO equivalent. I mean, it's, it's not and it's, it never will be. But the leaders were there and the, the most important ones, notably the notable ones, Alexander Lukashenko, Belarus, Tokayev, the president of Kazakhstan, and Pashinyan, who's Armenia's prime minister and the chairman of the CSTO Security Council at the moment, they were very obviously keeping as much distance as they could from Putin. They didn't speak to him. If there was an embrace, which there probably was at some point, but it, it happened fleetingly. It was not repeated. I didn't. I didn't see it. They went round to the um, tomb of the uh, Eternal Flame, the Immortal Warrior. I've got the got the phraseology wrong, but the, you know, marking the you know, those lost in combat, and they laid they laid roses. But after that, you know, Lukashenko was was out of there, and the others were just nowhere near. Uh, nowhere near Putin, no smiles. I mean, arguably, it's not a day for smiling, but 
but there were there was clear bonhomie against some uh, between some people and very notably not the CSCO. So what to make of it all? Well, as I said, Putin has tried to position himself as the legitimate heir to and the personification of the spirit of that wartime generation and sees Victory Day as a as the manifestation of his power. But I mean, so if this was this was the time to show off military prowess, but he just he was not able to do it. I mean, Russia have got a year ago, they were saying we'll be in Kiev in three days. Now they're saying, don't worry, fellas, Putin wasn't killed in the drone strike on the Kremlin. I mean, a, compl- a remarkable change of fortunes. And all they could muster today was some cadet bands and a few dozen Tiger, you know, all-terrain vehicles that have been painted green. So I think it was rather telling. And the diplomacy amongst the CSTO um, and the and the people we didn't see, we saw Lavrov up in the stands, the foreign minister, otherwise nowhere near the leader. You know, very very, if well isolated, you could say. But but it, it, I think it was clear who who what Putin was trying to do with the CSTO. But it it was um, there were no, there were no no great backslapping moments there. And I think that's that's rather that would be rather telling for the world. But I think domestically that will be that will be noticed. There are other military updates, but I just need to take a little pause there and I'm sure Natalia's got some views. Thanks, Dom. Yes, we'll come to the military updates shortly. But Natalia, you've watched many of these over the years. How did this one compare to you for some of those previous ones? Uh, hi, Francis, and hi, everyone. Sure, this one definitely felt special, and I totally, I'm, I'm totally with Dom on this one. But in terms of uh, foreign leaders, I think it's important to say that we saw the same thing last year. If I'm not mistaken, last year it was just uh, Putin and Lukashenko. So the foreign that 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 the, the poor foreign attendants would only to, to be expected. It definitely I the, the fact that military vehicles tanks were not uh, no were nowhere to be seen was definitely striking. But I would also like to add that yes, it obviously shows that the Russian army is busy. That the Russian army has been decimated in Ukraine. But there's a second dimension to that. I remember a lot of discussion a couple of. Of months before the parade uh, about you know how the parade should look like and if you if you listen to um, pundits on Russian state TV there was actually a lot of talk about that we need to scale down the parade because as some of them argued it might look embarrassing if you're sending the best pieces of a weaponry to a parade instead of using them where they should be used according to the Kremlin. So there is that. What really struck me about the, this parade was not the absence or presence of military vehicles. I mean, there were there were some of them. Obviously, the fly past was conspicuously absent. Just like the same the same thing happened last year when they scrapped it, presumably because of uh, bad weather conditions. Although all of the previous years there, there was nothing extraordinary about the weather to have cancelled that. This time it obviously happened because of all of the security fears following the drone attack. What was what really struck me this time was Putin's speech actually. And when it was over, I actually I, I took the trouble of going to the Kremlin's website and copy pasted the entire speech and basically highlighted the bits where he spoke about the invasion of Ukraine, just to sort of visually tell myself. Was the speech really about the Second World War and um, commemorating the dead, or was it about today's war? So, as I've highlighted the text, you know, I could see that sixty to good seventy percent of the speech was indeed about the invasion of Ukraine. 
which is kind of stunning. And, you know, when I started listening to it, I was quite struck by the fact that he opened the speech by saying, dear veterans, happy Victory Day. Thank you for, uh, you know, winning the war for us. And literally in the next sentence, he goes on to talk about fighting for Eastern Ukraine, fighting for Russia. So in some way, it sounded uh, a bit insulting, even to the, not even, but to the few surviving veterans who were, stand, who were sitting there on stage. Because this, this event definitely is not about Ukraine, it's not about the invasion of Ukraine. And um, th- to me, the fact that he had to dwell so much on what's going in Ukraine obviously shows that this is something that's on his mind right now. We know that Putin has been co-opting the war the Soviet victory in the war for all of those years. And uh, most recently, he's been using it to trying to draw incredible uh, parallels between the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Nazi invasion of Russia, portraying Russia as a victim. But this time, he all he talked about was Russia's current war in Ukraine about how Russia is under attack, how the West is uh, about to decimate it. That was that was quite. Dom, I understand you've got a question for Natalia. Yeah, if I may. So I said earlier on that the March of the Immortal Regiment did not happen. The relatives holding pictures and photographs of lost one uh, loved ones from the Second World War that did not happen. But when Putin and the the other leaders, the CSTO leaders, went round to the other side of the wall, I think the west side of the Kremlin, for the um, to mark to lay flowers at the Eternal Flame, there was then a, a sort of brief. Um, there was there were a small number of, of people there and a bit of sort of hand, um, shaking hands and, and what have you. And then suddenly this woman appeared, a younger woman, so so not old, holding a picture of her father or grandfather in the war, but a, a younger woman, middle-aged woman, holding a photo of a young man. Um, again, I didn't, it didn't look like a, a photo of a young man from the Second World War. She suddenly, she suddenly appeared in the crowd. Uh, she wasn't pushed forward to Putin. She kind of made her own way. Uh, now, to be fair, you know, he he did sort of go through to meet her. He didn't he didn't turn away. But I thought I, I wonder if that was staged. I can't think how she would have got that close to him otherwise. But it that just looked as if there was anyone saying, "What about my son, husband, brother yeah. in Ukraine?" That was it. It, it. it looked very odd. It looked very out of place. I just wonder if you saw that and what your thoughts were. I think I saw that woman in the background at some point. I think I, I missed uh, I missed it when she approached him. What I can say is that Red Square is a huge square. It's accessible from what four from from three sides typically. But this year again, another extraordinary security measure. It has been under lockdown. It has been completely uh, sealed for visitors since the twenty seventh of April, I think. So a it was not possible to physically reach, to physically get on Red Square. B, if we're talking about the same person, the woman was sitting on the stands or she was somewhere around, she had to have been invited. So all of those people are very closely monitored, vetted. So I'm sure she was not a random person who was just passing by. And when the leaders were walking to the Eternal Flame, which is the name of the monument, again, that area, there's, there's, a, bit of a, there's a bit of a fence running around. So it is possible for Putin's security detail to, again, seal that area so that they wouldn't allow any random passerbys to come up. So it is quite possible that it was a relative of one of the soldiers fighting in Ukraine. And again, Putin and his speech which also is another 
extraordinary departure from the usual protocol. In his official greeting, he said, dear citizens of Russia, dear veterans, dear officers, generals and admirals. And then he said, dear Russians fighting in Ukraine. So he did acknowledge them as an important part of, of his of, of the modern history that he's creating with his hands, unfortunately, to the whole world. So I would imagine that it may have been a real relative of, a, of an actual fighter. Thanks very much, Natalia. Now, before we turn to Dr. Mike Martin, Dom, I understand you've got a few military updates you just want to whiz through for us. Yeah, well, important to note because there seems to be quite a few airstrikes at the moment from Russia onto and inside Ukraine. So we just need to keep up to date. So Sunday, Monday, because we've not been, we, we weren't here yesterday. We had a pre-record on the on the pod. But Sunday, Monday, the Ukrainian general staff said that Russian forces launched sixteen missiles at Kharkiv, Hezon, Mykolaiv and Odessa regions. Ukrainian forces shot down all of the 35 launch Shahid drones. Then in Kyiv, Mayor Vitaly Klitschko, he said that um, 36 Russian drones out of 60 had been shot down. Now we saw one of these one of these missile blasts in, in Odessa. The Ukrainian Red Cross said that one missile had, had destroyed an entire warehouse. That story was out on, I think, Sunday, but it's still on our pages, completely obliterated the Red Cross uh, warehouse there. Now, Russian military bloggers have celebrated all this stuff about the intensified airstrikes against Kyiv. One was saying that it's uh, it's the lar- largest strike campaign conducted against Kyiv since the start of the war. This, of course, chimes with their habit of self-delusion and that the input is celebrated more than the output. What, what I mean by that is, you know, they're measuring the rounds fired, not how effective they were. So I'm pretty sure Ukraine would be quite happy with that. If they can shoot them down, then then great, you know, you take as much pleasure as you like, guys, from or cel- celebrate these these misses. But that was Sunday, Monday. Then last night, another large missile strike against a number of a number of cities across the country. The fifth so far this month. Reporting here, this is Roland Oliphant, who's uh, who's out in Ukraine. Our, our senior foreign correspondent. He's in Ukraine at the moment with Heathcliff O'Malley, our, our uh, photographer. So Roland was saying that last night, uh, Ukrainian Air Force uh, reports it intercepted 23 of 25 missiles, most of them launched by Russian strategic bombers over the Caspian Sea. These are the big Tupolev strategic bombers, so they're not going anywhere near the territory of Ukraine, even the Russian-held areas of Ukraine. These Tupolevs, they're firing their missiles many, many, many kilometres away. So in Dnipro, Roland saying that the uh, there were explosions and, and alarms going off from, from 2200 last night, 10pm. Air defence were engaging missiles. Authorities later said that eight had been fired at the region, seven to the city itself. Fragments of one missile struck the roof of a four-storey apartment block, which then fired through the block down to the third floor, damaging several homes. <clears throat> and Roland says one woman was taken to hospital with spinal and brain injuries. The warhead from that round was was found unexploded on the third floor, made safe by bomb disposal teams, and about 40 people evacuated from the building. Now, elsewhere, falling debris from, from missiles and drones shot down fell on a house in the southwest of Kyiv. This is, again, according to Vitaly Klitschko, the mayor. And uh, he says there are no casualties from that. So more on that from Roland. He's out there at the moment reporting with Heathcliff. And uh, yeah, so so keep up to date with with what they say. And uh, that's it for now. Well, thank you very much, Dom. And I'll come back to some diplomatic updates later on. But let's turn first to Dr. Mike Martin, Senior Visiting Fellow in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Mike, thank you very much for your patience and for your time today. To those who aren't familiar with your work, perhaps you can start by offering a brief summary of your background and your expertise. 
Sure. Thanks, Francis. And, and hi, everyone. So originally I was an, an army officer and I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. I was actually a political officer who spoke fluent Pushtu in the British Army. And since then, I've worked in various conflict zones around the world, both in the it's sort of the working for governments, but also working for commercial organisations and helping them understand conflicts and navigate conflicts. Alongside that, I've been a, a fellow at King's, which is where I did my PhD in the War Studies Department and written a number of books about conflict. And, and largely, rather than being about specific con- conflicts, although my first book was about Afghanistan, I've tried to zoom out and help people understand what conflict is about because I think that conflict is this ubiquitous human phenomenon that is very very poorly understood. Well thank you Mike. You've recently as you say published a a book called How to Fight a War. The war in Ukraine is understandably a core focus of that. Interested in your perspective on, on how have the Russians fought this war versus how the Ukrainians have fought it from a sort of strategic historic historic perspective? Um, well, I think often in war we focus on technology and things. You know, we just had a conversation about the Victory Day Parade, right, in Moscow and sort of counting the equipment. And that we often focus on that in war. But as I said earlier, in a human, is, war is this human phenomenon. So things like strategy, logistics, training and morale are actually much more important for determining the outcomes of war, like who wins and who loses. And you can almost look at Russia and Ukraine, you can sort of judge them on a, on a kind of scorecard for each of those things. And on each of those criteria, so strategy, logistics, training and morale, Ukraine comes out on top of Russia. So, I mean, on strategy, what you want is a clear enduring strategy, right? And the Russia came in with a, a, a flawed strategy to take over the whole country. And that was largely based on flawed understanding of what Ukraine was and how well they would fight, but also an overestimation of the Russian armed forces. Whereas Ukraine has had a, a single goal that they have resourced well, you know, largely by garnering support from the West, which is to remove all Russian soldiers from the territory of Ukraine. And what Russia's done is start out with these huge goals, these maximalist goals, and then slim them down. And now we're trying to focusing on the Donbass, but really they're kind of focusing on on uh, a really bad mood. and actually even now we see them doing things that don't contribute to their stated goals so their stated goal is to take the donbass but they have large numbers of troops tied up in zaporizhia in Kherson, which don't contribute to that overall strategic goal they've set themselves so there's a lot of confusion on the russian strategy and a very clear ukrainian strategy so one up to the ukrainians logistics um, you, you know, the big scale, the Ukrainians are being backed by the richest countries in the world, except for China. And on the other side, the Russians are behind sanctions. And the important thing about sanctions is not making Russia poorer, but it's about cutting out Russia's ability to access things like gyroscopes and microchips and sensors, because that's that's that the high end weaponry, the guided missiles, it makes it much more rush, much more difficult for Russia to produce those. And that's why we've seen Russia go to Iran. Because Iran's also under sanctions, but Iran's very good at producing cheap, low-tech equipment. And so that's why we've seen particularly that, that confluence of interest between Russia and Iran. And, but at the smaller scale as well, you know, can you supply the last 20 miles of your logistics to your forces under fire? And right from the beginning of the war, I mean, I don't know if many of your listeners might remember that famous 40-mile Russian tailback north of Kiev that the Ukrainians just destroyed and that 
that that's vital. You know, a, a, a mechanized or an armored division uses thousands of tons of supplies per day. So if you're, and particularly petrol ammunition, and if you're taking that out, that means that you're, it doesn't matter how many tanks you've got, they're not going anywhere and they're just expensive targets. And again, on the other side, I think the Ukrainians have been much more successful at dispersing their logistics and stopping the Russians targeting them. So we've consistently seen, particularly with HIMARS supplied by the Western nations, we've consistently seen successful Ukrainian disruption of Russian logistics, including, you know, just in the last 10 days or so, these big fires at oil terminals in Crimea. And you think, so what? But everything runs on petrol. It's about, it's between 25 and it's between a quarter and a third of the overall logistics per weight is petrol and diesel and other oils. So if you knock out the refining terminals, it, it makes the army grind to a halt. Um, morale, just to whiz through the other two, morale and training. Uh, you know, the Ukrainians are backs to the wall, defending their homeland with high morale. And, and we've heard lots of stories of Russian troops, you know, deserting or arguing. And we've got Wagner arguing with the army and army arguing with the Chechens and so on and so forth. So, and then finally, uh, training and, and, and Ukraine as, as well has benefited from eight years of training from NATO supporting countries. I mean, a lot of that army is now wiped out, but they've managed to create a training pipeline both within the country, but also utilizing, you know, in the UK, for instance, we've trained over 10,000 Ukrainian soldiers. And so there is a sort of continual pipeline of of training of troops, whereas Russia, as we had, as we you know, as we know, has had these mobilizations. And anyway, it's a conscript army, so the levels of training aren't that high. So yeah, on all of those four criteria, strategy, logistics, morale and training, I think you can say, and really those four are the fundamentals of your ability to fight war successfully. Ukraine is is out on top. And that's why I think both myself and probably a number of other experts right from the very start were saying, actually, Ukraine might have this. It's absolutely not going to be a Russian, you know, they're not just going to roll into Kiev in a week or two because actually these fundamental things they're not doing very well. They might have a huge army, second biggest army in the world and all the rest of it. But if you don't do the basics, then you're not going to go anywhere. Thanks, Mike. I'm I'm very interested in this question of logistics because, of course, we've now entered a phase where logistics, ammunition, material has become a particular focus. We are in this sort of attritional phase, or at least that's how it's being articulated by, by many. So, and in that perspective, a lot of people are saying that Russia has an advantage, but it sounds like you you disagree on that. So I'm just interested a little bit more on where do you stand on this idea that Russia has more material that it can mobilise if it needs to, whereas Ukraine does not have access to that? Because it sounds like you're more of an optimist than many. It's not just a question of how much stuff have you got. Like Russia is the number one natural resources producer in the world, right? So it's not going to run out of petrol, diesel, you know, lubricant oils, all that kind of stuff. And similarly, it has a massive arms industry, so it is able to generate shells and bullets and all the rest of it, right? So I don't think that's in any doubt. But the question is, do you have a functioning system? I mean, and the reason I focused on you know, petrol, oil, oils and ammunition is because those are the two most important things for modern armies. And of course, there are other things like spare parts and all the rest of it, and they're increasingly difficult for Russia to get. But those are the two key ones. And uh, but it's it's not just a question of having those things. It's about being able to get them the last hundred meters to your troops who are under fire. And if your opponent, so in this case, Ukraine has effective standoff artillery, which it does now with with HIMARS, 
and good intelligence, which it does, not only from its own sources, but of course the West is providing a huge amount. I mean, at any one time, there's tens of allied planes in the air watching what's happening in Ukraine, picking up, you know, scraping the communication space, putting together target packs and, and passing that to the Ukrainians so that they are able to, you know, effectively as a, a set of coordinates and say, this is this is a logistics convoy or this is an arms dump and passing that to the Ukrainians so the Ukrainians can then hit that with, with, with high miles or other forms of artillery. Like, that's incredibly successful. And what we found, just to give you an example of how successful and pertinent this is, um, when HIMARS first got introduced, the Russian logistics fell apart because suddenly the Ukrainians were able to hit 70 kilometers, whereas previously they only just hit 30 kilometers. And if you can hit 70 kilometers, that means that the Russians had to move their first line depots back another 40 or 50 kilometers. And that then meant they had to completely reconfigure because the last bit that you do from your depot to your troops is done by truck, right? You do it quite quickly. But if you've just doubled or more than doubled the distance to get your your oil and ammunition to those frontline troops, then you, you need twice it. Where do you get the lorries from? Suddenly you need twice as many lorries and, and so on and so forth. And the wear on those lorries is twice as much. So you, you increase the range of the Ukrainian artillery and it means that the Russians have to completely reconfigure their logistics. At the moment, we've heard reports of, well, a few months ago, the British gave them uh, 150 kilometer and the americans give 100 and there's talk of are we going to give them these sort of atacams at 300 kilometer range and all of these things what they mean is that the russians have to reconfigure how they do their logistics and that's and you know it sounds sort of technical and geeky but it's completely vital in a modern war where these particularly these two commodities but also spare parts are really vital to keeping your machine rolling that's very interesting. Now, you've reflected a lot on Twitter about the upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Very interested in your perspective on this. What do you foresee the Ukrainians intending to do and how successful do you think it could be? I think at a high level, you know, the Ukrainians are never going to kill every last Russian in Ukraine. There's lots of them and they're dug in and all the rest of it. But that's actually not what they need to do. They need to create some sort of battlefield spectacular or momentum so that the decision makers in Moscow are convinced that actually the war's not worth prosecuting or that they should withdraw or perhaps they want to launch a coup and take Putin out and there are lots of sharks circling in Moscow. And and so really the effect is a psychological one that you want to have in Moscow. So what do we... It sounds a bit macabre, but what's the piece of maneuver or momentum that we want to create on the battlefield in Ukraine that means the decision makers in Moscow decide that this war is no longer worth prosecuting. So I guess that's the first thing, the high level thing. And that's this comes back to this idea of strategy and war being a human thing and being deeply rooted in psychology. And then when you consider it like that, actually, there's there's lots of things they can do. You know, Crimea is clearly a you know, a Russian is close to the Russian heart. So is there some sort of, do we put Crimea under siege? There's there's obviously a very short route between the Zaporizhia front line and the Sea of Azov. So if you can cut across there, if you're Ukraine, then you can split the Russian forces into two, right? The bit that's in Crimea and in Kherson Oblast, and then the bit that's in Donbass and the bits around Mariupol. So that, and that, that makes it much more difficult for the Russians to supply themselves because their forces are split in two, right? And that's, you know, catastrophic. Now, obviously, the Russians are aware of that. So that Zaporizhia front line is, is the most heavily 
entrenched and you know it's got all the trenches dug and the, the tank traps and you know there's lots of physical fortifications and all the rest of it so you know ukraine has to be quite clever about how it does it strike somewhere else to draw troops away i mean ultimately what ukraine is hoping to do and all good strategy should try and give dilemmas to its opponent right so what ukraine is hoping to do is by probing in different areas is making russia think which of these areas do we defend do we spread ourselves very thinly do we defend all in this area and you've got to keep them from knowing exactly what your plans are in fact i wouldn't be surprised if the ukrainians don't know exactly where their final blow is going to fall and, and the best way to create that dilemma and in this the ukrainians are quite quite uh lucky because of the way that the russians invaded Effectively, if you look at the Russian forces and the Ukrainian forces in, in Ukraine, you've actually got two concentric circles, if you like. And the Russians are on the outside. They go from kind of the northeast all the way through the Donbass, down through Mariupol, all the, all the way along to Kherson. That's a kind of bigger circle. And the Ukrainians are on a smaller circle. Their front lines are smaller because they're inside. They're the inside circle and the Russian forces are the outside circle. And what that means is that Ukraine can move units and assets you know equipment and men and all the rest of it around from different bits of the front line much quicker than russia can and not to mention that ukraine's doing it in friendly territory and russia's doing it in occupied territory and all the rest of it there's you know occupied territory that's got partisans in it and all that kind of stuff and what that means is that in order to create this dilemma for russia ukraine can move assets up and down the line and hit them in the northeast and probe up there and do a river crossing in Kherson and, and so on and so forth hit logistics here hit logistics there just to keep the Russians, and this is what's happening at the moment, basically. They're, they're shaping the battlefield and they're probing here and they're destroying the logistics hub there. And then they're going over to the other side of the battlefield and they're knocking out a command hub. And then they've got some partisans to destroy a railway yard in Tokmak and so on and so forth. The idea being to create complete confusion and dilemmas for the Russians about exactly where or what this strike is going to look like. And I think ultimately what they're trying to do is get the russians to be moving things up and down the front line because effectively what could start out as a ukrainian probing attack if the russians don't rush troops there to defend that that could then become the main effort for the ukrainians and they push through and this is what i mean by i think the russians have, the ukrainians have got quite a flexible but if i were them i would have a very flexible approach to this the idea being to just see what the russians do and if they don't reinforce somewhere you push there if they do reinforce that you just flick to another axis and go over there and that's the beauty of the geography where they have internal lines and the Russians have external lines. Fascinating. Well, one final question from me before I open the floor to Dom and Natalia. This war took many by surprise, I think it's fair to say, including experts in war studies. I'm interested in what changes have you seen in the field of war studies since the full-scale invasion? Has there been an acknowledgement that mistakes were made? Is academia changing as a result? So you know, I was one of those people who misjudged whether Russia would invade because it seemed complete nonsense to invade a country the size of Ukraine with 44 million people with 150,000 troops. And, and I was wrong. I, I think academia is a quite a slow moving beast in the sense of learning lessons and changing. Like I think it moves at a much slower pace than perhaps punditry. I, I guess there is one thing I would say, which is that Every single war that happens, every single war, pundits say, ah, ah, war's changed. Oh, it's completely changed now. And it's, well, the new war's going to, you know, the tanks are completely useless. 
And actually, almost always, that never turns out to be true because because warfare has, you know, fundamentals which some of which we've spoken about, and they don't change. And so, you know, for instance, lots of people said, well, you know, just to go back to tanks, you know, the Ukraine war means that we don't need tanks anymore because, or or rather, they've been proven useless because of cheap drones and all the rest of it. And it's not. Well, actually, you do need tanks because they protect infantry and you definitely need infantry. So the question is not not to have tanks. The question is, how do we get proper drone defences on tanks? So I think there's often a bias towards, in the commentary, saying warfare has, this war has proved that warfare has completely changed. And I think upon reflection, most people say, actually, warfare is just the same, but there's always an inevitable arms race and we need to think about new technologies to, to, to counter you know, things that have just arrived on the battlefield. Thanks, Mike. Dom, I imagine you've got some questions for Mike. Yeah, thanks, Francis. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. I I must admit, I've I've got your book. I've not I've not yet finished it. It's propping <laughs> propping open the fire door as we speak. But I will get around to it. I promise. And, uh, I also misjudged. It. I mean, for audience, you've got some great people on today. I also misjudged the war because it's stupid. I didn't think he would do it either. But hey, you know, at least we can. Well, it takes me on to my question. Actually, at least we can say we were wrong and, and learn from it. So why why is Russia, with all the evidence it has had in since the full scale? invasion why is russia still not the russian military still not a learning organization just repeating the same mistakes why are they not any better than they are after after a year of doing this because it's a very hierarchical organization and the, the culture of all organizations is set at the top and the culture in the kremlin is of saying yes boss and you know putin has spent the last 20 years removing people who challenge him and so when you know he effectively said, "Well, we're going to go invade Ukraine," and everyone went, yeah, "Okay, that would be a good idea," and that permeates all the way down. I mean, historically, the Russian army is a very hierarchical army compared to Western armies, which have a more decentralized style of command, where we we hope that people rely on their own initiative. So, the Western army, you you tell people what they need to achieve, but not how to do it, and you let them think about how to do it. Whereas in a Russian army. Each layer of command is literally about passing on how to do stuff meticulously. And what that means, it means two things. It means that firstly, it's very hard for those armies to adapt to local circumstances because they just had orders upon high to the very you know great level of detail. And they can't respond quickly because they need to go all the way up the chain and all the way back down again to to you know ask if they can change the plan. But it also means they can't learn because any failures are immediately sort of hushed up because there's this everyone's you know it's come right from the top it's the top that's failed because the orders have come all the way down but you can't then you can't then criticize your command it's sort of the baboon theory of management if you imagine a bunch of baboons climbing a tree if you look down or you know all the balloons baboons beneath you are sort of grinning up at you and like you know thumbs up and grinning up at you and if you look up all you can see is a a, a row of bottoms that are you know um uh, this is a Twitter space, so I'm not quite sure what words I can use. Um, but you can fill in your own imagination. And that, I think, is very true in army. You know, North Korean army is another example of a very hierarchical army where they don't learn, it's very inflexible, and and ultimately they rely on weight and mass. And if you look at the, you know, the Russian armies in the Second World War, you know, with these the Victory Day today is celebrating the 20 million Soviet Union casualties. Well, there's a reason why they ended up with 20 million Soviet Union casualties. And that's because they just used human wave tactics. 
And whilst we're not seeing that to the same degree, we're still seeing a little bit of that in 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 Ukraine. And then finally, I would say, coupled with all of that about command styles and hierarchies and stuff, there's a willingness to accept casualties in Russian political leadership, which is unmatched, certainly in Western countries, but probably also in China. I doubt China, with the one-child policy and many families only having one man, I doubt even China would be willing to accept these casualties levels. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite unmatched elsewhere in the world. Thanks, Mike. And I, I do hope you have a PowerPoint slide for your baboon theory of management, although I wouldn't <laughs> want to see it. On to the, on to the, the, the anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive. I think you and I might slightly differ here. I agree that, that of the need for a battlefield spectacular momentum and that, that it's largely, well, all war starts in the mines. It's psychological first and then heavy metal second. But I mean, I, I have been cautioning on our sort of defence in depth series of videos. I just think I think of greater importance to Ukraine than than causing a right old rumpus in the Kremlin is to not do anything to jeopardize the international league of support for Ukraine. And I just wonder if by going big and I agree, push through Melitopol, get down to the Sea of Azov, split them in two, you know, that would be tremendous. But I wonder if that went wrong, then there could be there could be calls from the less committed in the international community for negotiations or we're not going to send any more money or or, or equipment. And so I, I've, I wonder if they'll go for much more limited objectives to prove to themselves and to the world, but mainly to themselves, that they can do combined arms warfare, tanks, infantry, engineers, everyone working together, air defence, air, and then... And then come back in the next round, the next, which might be later this year, might be next year on the big thing. So I, I see it as much more limited objective. Am I, am I being too overcautious, do you think? Well, well, we'll find out, Dom. But what I think is that 2024 is a US presidential election year. And if you look at some of the people who are lining themselves up for that, that's a little, that's very risky for Ukraine to hope that the support to Ukraine doesn't become a political football in the US presidential election. And... If, it, if US support drops off, then European support drops off as well. And so I think that my my sense is, particularly with all these inflows of equipment we've seen in the first part of this year, you know, equipping Ukraine with a, a bigger land force than the British Army has, by the way, I think that that is a recognition of the fact that they do need to do something fairly serious. And I this year... And I think that Ukraine is actually in a bind because I think that incremental stuff will make people think, oh, God, how long is this going to go on for? And then plus, you know, the thing I've just said about the US presidential election, whereas a bold strategy competently executed has the chance to change the political weather in a way that might finish the war earlier. That's that's my sense of it. And of course, they may end up trying to be bold a la, you know, as I'm arguing, and end up in your space because they can't quite do it as competently as they want to, or you maybe the Russians respond or, or whatever. Yeah, that, no, that's a, that's a very fair, very fair assessment. And just finally, before Natalia jumps in, in terms of the direction of any any counteroffensive, I, I, what do you think the risk would be of going of going east if they try and go through the Donbass? Now, admittedly, there's a, there's a hell of a lot of fortifications there, but just in terms of the society they then might be operating in, what risk do you think there would be to Ukrainian forces from people in Donetsk and Luhansk, you know, the so-called People's Republics? Would they want to go that way and potentially have 
have to guard themselves against an insurgency almost for the first few months. And hence that might indicate that they would go elsewhere than, than due east. Look, I would defer to Natalia's view on that. I think it's very difficult to say after, don't forget, many of those areas have been occupied since 2014, right? So almost a decade. So it's very hard to say what the feel is in those areas. And, you know, there's a generational gap, whereas the older people are more pro-Russian, the younger people are are pro-Ukrainian or want to join the EU or stuff. And it's not clear how many of those young people have left and so on and so forth. So it's quite difficult to to say exactly to answer your question. Certainly, that is that will be the case much more so than in, you know, other areas of Ukraine like Kherson. But I think, again, the the war is not going to be settled in the Donbass. The war is going to be settled in the south and in Crimea. So I think any activity that the Ukrainians do in Donbass, so perhaps, you know, one of the things I've suggested is that there's a real opportunity to do a double envelopment in Bakhmut. So the Russians are surrounding the Ukrainians in Bakhmut, but then if you drive, if the Ukrainians drive an envelopment around the Russian envelopment of the Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut, so a double envelopment, that has a, a real chance to uh cause all sorts of chaos on the russian side which would then open up some of the stuff in the south but i i think i see the activity in the donbass as being secondary to stuff in the south i would actually like to comment on what on the question that dom asked about mm. what if or when ukraine comes to liberate the areas that have been occupied by russia since 2014 i mean i think there are several things to take into consideration first off yes a lot of Pro-Ukrainians have left those areas and they're not there anymore. This area has been economically depressed. There's an assumption that those who wanted to live in slash with Russia are already there, those who didn't left. But there's another important thing uh, uh, to consider is the fact that, I mean, I I, I think that the answer to that question would be different, would have been different before the 24th of February. This time, that area, I mean, they have suffered so much during this war. They have seen waves of absolutely brutal indiscriminate conscription when men were grabbed off the streets. And from, from what I've heard from that area is that people living there, they are just so sick and tired of the war. Obviously, as someone who who lives on the sort of the Russian control side of the border they they've um, you know they've been shelled by Ukrainian forces that's totally understandable but at this point it looks like people are so sick and tired that they would just be happy for any end to hostilities and uh, it doesn't like from where i'm looking i don't think that there would be much of a partisan activity to speak of but yeah if i can i would love to ask mike a question uh mike thank you for your work i just wanted to ask you about Russia. We've we've heard a lot in recent weeks about a possible second mobilization in the light of the upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Obviously, there is a need for more troops. We still haven't seen that second mobilization happening. What we've been seeing in Russia is some kind of an effort to get people to sign up voluntarily, but that mobilization hasn't happened. From your observation, do you feel that the Kremlin would have to resort to some kind of conscription or mobilization. Are they, or it, does it look like they're able, like the forces they have right now are enough, at least for the time being? Russia has to replace its losses, right, which are running at a, a pretty heavy rate. I mean, accurate casualty figures are really, really hard to come by, but I mean, people are talking about 200,000 Russian casualties, of which 40,000 are dead, and, you know, a number of, obviously, 
for a similar number injured or, you know, oh, sorry, the remainder of that injured. So they've got to at least replace those. And it's not clear that they'd be able to do that from the draft. And so the idea about the draft, of course, is that you raise the draft and then you send them not necessarily to Ukraine, but to other areas. You know, Russia has, you know, has other military responsibilities. And then you can bring in more experienced people to go to Ukraine. But, you know, it's not just a question of you can't create it, you know, back to the importance of training and morale. You can't create an army just by snapping your fingers, pulling some people in off the streets and giving them a gun and saying, go on. Like modern warfare is complex and people who are just drafted in and given two days training will die. And we've seen that already in the war. Lots of the mobilized Russian reservists or civilians with a, you know, a little bit of military experience. Um, a lot of them died very quickly because they were poorly equipped, low morale and with very little training. And the thing about training is, of course, you need to then take experienced people from somewhere. So Ukraine is where most of the experienced people are and then send them back to create training camps. So the act of training up people, particularly if they're, you know, the longer it goes on, the more you're scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of fitness, age, you know, desire to participate in the war all that kind of stuff the longer it goes on the more people you have to pull good people who should be fighting off to go and train more people so you end up in a bit of a downward spiral so i i don't actually see uh these mobilizations attentive mobilizations rumored mobilizations as being that effective because you're basically you've got two choices you either give them two weeks training very quickly and send them to the front in which case they'll die pretty quickly or you take more time to train them better, but that requires resources that you don't have and equipment that you don't have. And so it, it's not the, it's a bit like the oil and the, you know, the weapons industry in Russia. Yes, they do have an advantage at that level, but can they get it to the troops? And I think it's the same with mobilized troops. Can you actually get them to the front line in a fit state to fight? And so, yeah, just raw numbers of people is, is not in, in and of itself helpful. Well, thank you very much, Mike. We'll come to your final thoughts in a moment. But before we do, I did promise I would just give a few political and economic updates. We've spoken a lot about the victory parade today, and there's been a big response also in Ukraine to this and within the European Union as well. President Zelensky has marked the anniversary of the surrender of Nazi Germany in World War II by saying that he would formalise a day of remembrance in Ukraine on the 8th of May when Western countries celebrate Europe's victory. He was speaking to the nation on a hill overlooking Kiev, and he said that the old evil has returned, this time waged by a modern Russia, pursuing the same goal as the Nazis of enslavement and destruction. But then he went on to say that they wouldn't succeed. As I say, he has submitted a bill to Parliament to officially make May 8th a day of remembrance and victory. He went on, we are returning our state to an honest history without ideological influences. It is on 8th of May that most nations of the world remember the greatness of the victory over the Nazis. And he goes on and saying that this will be the opportunity in which to change that narrative. Interestingly, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen is also there and reaffirmed the EU's unwavering support towards the country. That's according to a spokesman for the European Commission. And they've said that the visit will focus on all dimensions of our relations with Ukraine. But I think we can all say safely that the real intention behind this is to show at the time that Putin 
Putin is obviously in the headlines that Europe has a response to this and that it's part of this shift to Europe day that Ukraine belongs now in the European family as opposed to under the Russian sphere of influence as it may have formerly been perceived. Just a final couple of updates. The grain deal saga uh, goes on. The UN has said that no ships were inspected on Sunday or Monday under a deal allowing the safe Black Sea export of Ukraine grain. It's believed the reason for this is these holdups is that Russia are kicking up a fuss, as I spoke about last week. They're saying that after May 18th, they may stop this deal that's been struck that would allow the grain to be exported from Ukraine safely. They are obviously using this as leverage, but on conversations are ongoing and so more on that as we have it. And finally, just because it's been a consistent theme in the last few months, um, quite troubling news coming out of Goldman Sachs relating to winter gas prices. They are saying that despite what's been a pretty strong winter in terms of the, at least contrasting with the fears around the cost of energy as a consequence of the war, they are saying that they fear that gas prices will almost treble as Putin's energy war intensifies in the second half of 2023. They're saying that wholesale gas prices could rise above 100 euros per megawatt hour in the second half of the year, which would be nearly three times higher than present levels of 36 euros. They're saying that European consumption and liquefied natural gas demand elsewhere in the world is will also rebound, which will re-raise the prices on average. So big concerns to them. This is in a note to investors. And they've warned that even if industrial demand remains sluggish this summer, this is not a guarantee that storage will be comfortable throughout winter. There is only so much capacity to store gas ahead of the heating season. So this will, of course, be a concern. It doesn't come as a necessarily a huge shock. We were very lucky with a fairly mild winter this time. But there is fear about what this will mean in the long term. And clearly, for all the reasons we've touched on today, Putin is relying on a shift in Western resolve regarding this war. And the energy front remains integral to that, as well as the military and economic ones. So that's where we are in the diplomatic and political space. But we'll come to an end an now. We'll end with Mike's final thought. But, Dom, can I come to you for your final thoughts, first of all? Yeah, thank you. So just back to the Victory Day parade. Slightly, slightly. Uh, well, let's go f- further west. Uh, the Russian ambassador to Poland tried to lay a wreath at the memorial in Warsaw and was forced to leave, unable to lay the wreath and forced to leave by by local citizens who denied him entry, which I think says a lot about the war and says a lot about um, the reaction we're going to see today to the to the parade. So my final thought would be keep an eye out on the international sphere about how it was received and particularly the the comment uh, about how it will be received inside Russia, this, this massively scaled down parade today with just the one single tank, the T-34. There were other vehicles, of course, but the only tank. And what we know, Russia loves its nukes and tanks. We saw the nukes. There were no tanks. Thanks, Dom. Natalia. Yeah, I just have a couple of thoughts very briefly, but more on uh, the Ukrainian front. Just on Friday, I, I started hearing from sources in southern Ukraine that um, there is some sort of an evacuation underway that authorities are telling them to pack bags or to prepare to go. As, so as everyone is expecting, is, is waiting for um, the Ukrainian counteroffensive, this, this seems to me 
the one of the clearest signs signs yet that something is afoot that at least the russians are aware that something is going on and uh before things kick off at the battlefield i think this is something important to look at to see what's going on in southern ukraine is something happening with the occupation administration are they forcing people to leave so that's something that i would watch for in the coming days Thank you very much, Natalia. And Dr. Mike Martin, our guest for today, what are your final thoughts that you want to leave our listeners with? I think this summer is going to be where the war is going to be decided. So that's what I would be looking out for. I think that this summer is the critical stage. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You'll find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.